You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Primarily because of their sin idolatry. They had 19 kings. God gave them 19 chances to get it right to him, to put him first. They didn't. So after about 200 years, God judges them and allows them to be conquered by the kingdom of Assyria and also primarily the most of them, most of the, the younger and stronger uh, people of Israel gets taken and deported to Assyria. Judah does a little better, right? Judah, about a third of their kings are faithful to God. Um, a third more are sort of, eh, you know, sometimes faithful, sometimes not. But after a while, they also get judged because of their sin of idolatry and also because they ignored all of the laws of the Sabbath. So they're supposed to allow the land to rest. And they themselves are supposed to rest, but they never obeyed that Sabbath law. And so God judges them in 586 B.C. through Babylon. And Babylon conquers them, and like Assyria, deports a lot of them to Babylon. Now, there's something that happens in the, the second judgment of Babylon that didn't happen in, in the first judgment uh, to Assyria. And that's Babylon decides to destroy the main central focus of Jewish identity and worship. So Babylon destroys the entire temple. And that is the, the central identity of what the Jews place their faith, their culture upon, and the primary reason why they were there in Palestine in the first place. I mean, if it weren't for God guiding Abraham there all those years ago, they wouldn't be there. And Babylon, God allows Babylon to destroy the temple, and not only destroy the temple, but all of the gold and silver uh, articles and equipment used for worship King Nebuchadnezzar takes them and brings them back to Babylon. And that's going to be pertinent to our story as we continue on with it. Now, this is what's called the period of the Babylonian captivity, or some people call it the period of Babylonian exile. And it's going to last 70 years. How do we know it's going to last 70 years? It's not just because of history, but because Jeremiah, before this happened, prophesied that there would be a 70-year period of judgment and then God's wrath would be taken away, and he would allow all of you to come back to Israel again. We read in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, namely Jerusalem uh, and Judah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You know, a lot of times we memorize that Bible verse and we use that Bible verse as a promise for our future, not knowing that the context of this positive Bible verse is actually really negative. It's before that they knew that they were going to be enslaved by Babylon that he gives us this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So for those of you who are going through really hard times and feel like you're going to be in captivity for 70 years, this verse then relates to you and you can memorize and quote it, okay? Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So the return we're going to see is going to not just be a geographical return. Oh, 70 years are over, and now you're going to be able to come back and restart your country and your nation and your culture. 
No, it's going to be a spiritual return. The exile was one of non-spirituality. The reason why they were exiled is because they weren't faithful to God. They weren't spiritual. But now the return is going to be a spiritual one where they truly do have a heart to seek after and worship God. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you. For example, Assyria, Babylon, etc., declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, when it comes to 70 years, a lot of people wonder, well, when did the 70 years start and when does it end? And we find that the 70 years works for both types of instances. First of all, chronologically and also spiritually. So, for example, the first deportations to Babylon from Judah began around 606 B.C. And the first returnees to Israel from former Babylon, which then became Medo-Persia, was 536 B.C., 70 years. Okay? Now, when I tell you these dates, some people have it one to three years more or one to three years less because it's really hard to pinpoint sometimes the exact date, but it's around that time. Okay? And so as we look at some charts, you're going to see some of the dates are off by maybe one or two years. That's okay, around that time. Spiritually speaking, too, God's temple was destroyed by Babylon at 586 B.C., the time of the last deportment. But God's temple was completely rebuilt by Judah, by the returnees, at 516 B.C., again, 70 years. So we see that this prophecy was true either in a chronological sense or also in a spiritual sense. Now, what happened during these 70 years, and where does Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther fit into this? Because as we study the post-exilic period, a lot of people wonder, how do they all relate with each other? And so here is part of the answer. So we see this is a chart about the Babylonian captivity and the return from the Babylonian captivity. On the top, you see all of Israel's primary leaders. On the bottom, you see the kings of the ancient empires of first Babylon and then of Medo-Persia. And in the middle, you see where, how the Israelites are doing, how the regular people of Israel are doing. So 606, this is the first captivity, and that's during the time of Daniel. So if you read the book of Daniel, that's around 606 B.C. Then there's a second captivity, and that's what you read in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. The temple is destroyed at 586, and then everyone, all of the, the, the deporting back to Babylon is complete. Okay, so there's only a few people left in Israel, in, or specifically in Judah, most of them, 80% of them, are now in Assyria or Babylon, which then becomes Medo-Persia. Okay, so in 539 B.C., Babylon falls to Cyrus. Cyrus is a king of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so it's like they don't have anything against the Jews, right? The Jews were a problem for the Assyrians, and they were a problem for the Babylonians. They kept rebelling against Assyria, they kept rebelling against Babylon. They wouldn't pay their taxes. They wouldn't pay their tributes because they, in their minds, they were only beholden to one true God. That's all. Their loyalty was only to one true God, not to any empire. And so now Medo-Persia inherits all of these Jews and inherits the province of Israel and Judah or Samaria and what once was Judah. And they're like, well, we don't have anything against you. So if you want to go back just go ahead and go back, you know, rebuild your temple, and we will even fund you from our royal treasury, right? We will even use our government 
from the tax dollars of everyone else to help you, okay? And so then they return in 536, led by this guy named Zerubbabel. So Justin, can you say Zerubbabel like 10 times in a row really fast? It's really hard, okay? Zerubbabel, uh, <clears throat> and we'll, we'll get to know him a little more as we continue. And then they, they lay the foundation of the temple, and as you saw in the video, it was halted because there was local foreign resistance to it. But then they finally finished it uh, in 516, okay? And that's during the time of the book of Haggai and Zechariah. So if you ever read the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, that's during this time, right? And then after that is the period of Esther. We don't know exactly if it's during the period of Xerxes or Artaxerxes, but it's Esther is after Zerubbabel and after the temple is finished. And then after Esther is Ezra and then Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah gets a lot of credit for, for bringing revival back to the nation of Judah and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But if it weren't for Esther and what happened with Purim, if you remember the story, none of that would have happened. So Esther also deserves a lot of credit here, even though she doesn't uh, get a lot of credit. So I hope this sort of like helps you to see the timeline of what's going on. It could get a little confusing with, uh, you know, all the minor prophets and what's going on with all of these Jews returning to, to, to Judah and who are the main players and, and what's going on with God's plan at this time. Now, here's a map showing the return to Zion for those of you who are more visual learners. You see, first of all, the top uh, blue or greenish uh, arrow and, and travel uh, uh, placements, and that is what we're talking about. Zero Bubble uh, takes uh, the Jews from Nippur and also Susa. Right, we know that uh, the, the Persians were probably not very politically correct with a city called Nippur. Anyway, sorry, that's a bad joke. Okay, and so they take that uh, top uh, route. Then later, Ezra and Nehemiah, 80 years later, takes the bottom route, okay, which is a little more dangerous because of all of the uh, traveling bands of nomadic uh, robbers in the desert. All right, so th that helps you to understand, like, what's going on here in terms of the return to Zion or, or the return from exile from Babylon or now the empire of Medo-Persia. Now the first return showed the Israelites one main point, that God's judgment was over, and now a new age of mercy and grace would befall upon those who would desire to return, um, and even those who would desire to stay, that now that 70 years of God's wrath is over. So why don't we all stand and sing this song with that in mind.
So obviously, as we can see, the return to Jerusalem was full of joy. That when they decided through God's providence and through the King Cyrus of Persia to come back to Jerusalem, it was full of happiness, it was full of gladness. Finally, after 70 years of being in a completely different culture, completely different national identity, they're able to come back. And if you could think about it, it was about time. Because already almost three generations have passed. If you want to disable a culture or, or disable uh, the national identity of a group of people, all it takes is maybe three or four generations and that's it. Because then you, have, you no longer have the original people that came from that culture anymore. And now your grandkids are pretty much assimilated to the culture where they're at, as well as the culture you're originally from. But it's enough that 
now it's, it's not the same. So they're probably really full of joy, and, and not just probably, we know that because that's what we read when it comes to them coming back and rebuilding the temple. In Ezra chapter 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. And so the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with gold and silver, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. And then we continue to chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. So now they're back in Judah, in Israel, and they're assembling in Jerusalem. Then verse 2. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And what's interesting in, in the beginning of verse 2 is Joshua, son of Josadak, who's helping to rebuild the temple and to burn uh, sacrifices on it. And Joshua is basically another name for Yeshua, which is Jesus. So we have this guy named Jesus, who's not Jesus the Christ, but Jesus, son of Josadak, who's helping build what is representative of Jesus, <laughs> the temple. Verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by King David uh, of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. Um, but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And so those who are older priests, they remember the first temple when they were children because it's only been 70 years. So these priests, who are probably around 75 to 95 years old, being still alive, remember the glory of the first temple, remember how it was destroyed and was crying because of that, but now they're seeing it being rebuilt again, and they're now crying with nostalgic joy because we're finally rebuilding the former glory of what was, what was Israel, which is the Lord God's temple. From this joyful return, we see, first of all, that God is sovereign. Right, so King Cyrus isn't even a believer, right? Well, at least he's not a believer solely in the one true God. He's probably a polytheist. Because he believes that there is 
a God of Israel, but he's not a, a soul believer in, in God, but yet God moves the heart of this pagan king to order the return of the Jewish exiles and to even rebuild his temple. And so we see how a lot of times when we look around, we go, oh man, the fate of Christianity and the church here in America and in Europe, especially in Europe, no one even goes to church anymore. Oh, you know, what's going to happen with, with Christianity? Is it going to die? What's going to happen to the world once Christianity becomes a minority? Oh my goodness. As if God couldn't really do anything about that, right? <laughs> well, right now, during this part of the story, it was that. It was that. The Jews were not a power. The Jews had not been a power ever since the day of, days of Solomon. It, it was no longer the United States of America for them, okay? They were now a minority. They were now a small little nation about to die. But yet God is still working. God is still sovereign, and he's still moving history along so that in the end, the, the Jewish people would be in glory again. And, and we know that through the person of Jesus Christ, and also those of you that have read the book of Revelations know that they're going to be in the forefront at the end again with the new Jerusalem. But God is always at work, and if there's no believer that he can work through, well, he's going to work through a, a non-believer to get his will done. And we see this in King Cyrus of Medo-Persia. Now, the religious policy of the Medo-Persian Empire was one to, of support and tolerance and respect for all religions. As long as these religious people, whatever religion it was, would not go against the government, go against the empire, then they were okay with it. They would even fund them with whatever they needed from the royal treasury. And so in that sense, they were a bit more liberal than we are today because you did not need to be a even if you're a nonprofit, the government would fund you, right? So the government actually helped rebuild the Jewish temple. Zerubbabel was the one to lead the first wave of Israelites back to Jerusalem and Judah around 536 B.C. and became the first governor of a reestablished Israel. And for those of you who are thinking, oh, well, the lines of kings was broken. Actually, it wasn't because Zerubbabel was the perfect choice. Zerubbabel is actually a descendant of David, so he has royal blood in him and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Uh, all you have to do is read Matthew 1, 6, 12, and 16 to see that. And about 50,000 Israelites come back with him to resettle Israel and to help rebuild God's temple. Now, since we are in love with charts, I know that our church, since we have so many engineers, we love charts. And so here's another chart to help you to understand uh, where the story is in terms of the Bible that you're reading. So here's a chronology of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The first return under the Zerubbabel, which is where we are at in the story right now, happens between Ezra 1 to 6, between 537 and 516 B.C. Then we go to the time of Esther, years later, generations later, in around 573 B.C., then 80 years after the return, after and after Esther, that is Ezra chapter 7, to 10, and that's when Ezra returns with a group of Jewish people uh, to not only resettle, but also to bring revival under uh, uh, scrupulous study of the word of God. And then there's a third return a few years after that under Nehemiah, and that's the book of Nehemiah when they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, So the return and the beginning of the rebuilding of God's temple was full of both positive and nostalgic joy, as I said before, as even people who are now elders remember the glory of the original temple 
and how it was destroyed when they were children. And their joy was also because of what the return and the beginning of the rebuilt temple symbolized, that God had not forgotten them, and they still have a future. Now, some of us, um, when we, especially those of us who like to go traveling or have been part of um, starting a, a new community uh, at a neighborhood, wonder why was it that they rebuilt the temple first? Maybe they should have been like Nehemiah and built a wall first, right, for defense. Build a wall, right? Nehemiah, build a wall. Make Jerusalem great again, right? Um, and, but back then, that wasn't their national identity. Do you remember how their national identity started? Their national identity started, yes, indirectly during the time of Abraham, but directly during the time of Moses. And what was the guiding light of the Exodus during that time, before they actually settled in Jerusalem or settled in in Palestine, in Israel? What was the centerpiece of what guided them? It was God who revealed himself in what was to become the temple. It was called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. So wherever the tabernacle went, the the mobile temple of God, then the Jewish people would gather around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was always the center of where the Jewish people would reside. And now back to Judah, when when they're coming back, in order to, to do that again, in order to to get the blessing of God and to represent who they are as a people of God, they are working on the temple first. So much so, they were so excited that before they even finished the walls of the temple, they started sacrificing to God as, as long as they had the, the, the altar of, of burnt offering and the laver there. They were already sacrificing to God before the temple was complete. All they had done was laid the foundations, okay? And so this is a joyous and great time because, it, again, it symbolized that God is back. And not only is God is, is back, we are now following God, and we're not going to make the same mistakes as our ancestors did when they followed other idols. And like the verse said, they sung, He is good, his love endures forever. Why don't we sing this song to God with that in mind? Let's all stand. God and King, His love endures forever. For He is good, He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, His love endures forever. For the life that has been reborn, His love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise. Forever God is faithful, forever God is Forever God is with us forever.
the rising to the setting sun. From the rising to the setting sun, His love endures forever. By the grace of God, we will carry on. His love endures forever. His love endures forever For the life that has been reborn His love endures forever Sing praise Sing praise Sing praise Sing praise Forever God is faithful, forever God is strong, forever God is with us, forever. Now, like with most stories, a challenge hits them and they hit a wall because they forgot that there's a whole bunch of people that don't want them to come back, right? This, the story is, is, again, continued. It's almost like a repeat of what happened in the late 1940s, except going backwards in time, right? But the rebuilding of the temple was full of foreign resistance. So we read along in Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So Cyrus first, and then there's this king that the Bible doesn't talk about named Cambyses, and then there's King Darius. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So one of Assyria and Babylon's policies of conquest was to repopulate conquered areas with their own people and then intermarry with the conquered. Now the reason why is this. First of all, after a while, after a few generations, it would destabilize the cultures, the region's culture. It would help the region transition to become a true part of the conquered empire, not just in name only. So they didn't want just, oh, the trans-Euphrates area where it used to be Judah, uh, that's now Medo-Persia. Uh, but, you know, the Jewish people are there. They wanted the Assyria and Babylon. I'm sorry, that's now Assyria, that's now Babylon. They wanted those parts to be truly Assyria with Assyrians and truly Babylon with Babylonians. Right now, Medo-Persia was different in that they had more tolerant policy of just letting people be who they are just as long as they didn't go against the empire. But because of that, you now have people who see Jewish people coming back to their original land as enemies, not as friends. 
So for example, the descendants of these Assyrians and Babylonian immigrant families, some of whom have been in Palestine for over 150 years now. So this is now their home. They developed a, a, a legacy and a heritage of 150 or more years now. Would see this resurgence of national Jewry as a threat to their new way of life and to their new or held political power at the time. So for example, during the time of Jesus, you had this group called the Samaritans. Who are they, right? The Samaritans were the descendants of former northern Israelites whom the Assyrians didn't take into captivity. And then the Assyrians, then they had people immigrate to Israel to intermarry with these northern Israelis, and then the product of which became the Samaritans who had a different religion and who had a different outlook on life, and their ethnicity was mixed and not, in the Jewish people's eyes, truly Hebrew, not truly Jewish, okay? And so, therefore, you have people that are there who don't want the Israelis there. They don't see the returnees as a happy thing, okay? Also, there's descendants of former enemies and frenemies of Israel still scattered about there, All right? So you still have remnants of the Philistines there. You still have the Edomites that are there. You still have remnants of the Moabites and the Ammonites. All of the, the common names that you remember when through the Exodus and during the time of the monarchy, the remnants of people are still there because, again, the Assyrians and the Babylonians didn't take them all away. And these people would remember their history and would still have an axe to grind against Israel. Primarily because there are times of history, Israel's history, where they dominated them, where they, they would be a vassal province to Israel, especially during the time of David and during the time of Solomon. So the, re, the movement of return and rebuilding was met with a local movement of anti-Zionism that negatively influenced the relationship, trade, and business with the locals, which were necessary to resettle and to rebuild the temple completely. And that's why the building of the temple stopped for 16 years. They laid the foundation and maybe a couple of other things, but then they weren't able to complete the rebuilding of the temple for 16 years. And then what was happy and joyful became a time of stagnation and spiritual languidity, and they needed revival from God.
things were about to change because God gets involved. And so the third part of what we see in the return is that because of God's encouragement, the second temple finally gets completely rebuilt. Ezra chapter 5 continues with, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, Trans-Euphrates is basically the whole area west of the Fertile Crescent, so from Phoenicia all the way down, modern-day Beirut all the way down to Egypt is the Trans-Euphrates. So he was sort of in charge of the trans-Euphrates. Uh, and she Shethar Baz and I, how would you like these names, you know? Hey, what's up, Tat and I? You want to go to Wendy's later? Yeah, sure, okay. Can you bring Shethar Baz and I? Yeah, I'll bring Shethar Baz and I. We got to have Shethar Baz and I just because his name is Shethar Baz and I. And their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore the structure? Uh-oh, someone's in trouble. They also asked, what are the names of the men constructing this building? Even in further, when, when people ask, what's your name, right? Then you know you're in trouble. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. So these two people, Tatnai and Shethar Bosnai, wrote a report to uh, king Darius and said, hey, these guys are rebuilding again. This is wrong. The previous king said, you can't do that. Can you... Uh, Give us back a letter. Tell us what we can do to stop this, right? And so we read in Ezra chapter 6, 
King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. So they went into the internet, okay, and looked at, you know, what was there. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ekbatana in the province of Media, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide. Whoa, that's awesome. With three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bazanai, and you, their fellow officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house on its site. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bazanai, and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So basically, the, the temple was re-encouraged to be built and ratified by King Darius. And then, after Darius, there was another uh, king named Artaxerxes, and that is when the temple was finally completed. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles <coughs> celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is part of Passover, or Passover is part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, of course, the Assyrian Empire is no longer there, right? But they say the king of Assyria because uh, it was in the territory of a former Assyria. Now, we see that the rebuilding of God's temple would, would not have continued or it would have continued to be halted if it weren't for God himself getting directly involved through his prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is really significant here because he's actually, he's the descendant of the prophet Ido. It, it continues to say, Zechariah, the descendant of Ido, Zechariah, the descendant of Ido. Why? Because Ido was the prophet during King Solomon's time who encouraged the building of the first temple. And so you now have the descendant of Ido, Zechariah, who is now encouraging the building of the second temple. So it's another stamp of approval by God that God is for this. God is, is here. God also influenced the minds of King Darius, the Jewish elders of the return, and the temple builders to become very positive about rebuilding. So, and also, of course, finding the archive letter of approval from Cyrus helped as well. And so if you ever doubt the power of prayer, just look in the Bible. God can influence the minds of people in high places, politicians, all the way to the people in the lowest places. We should always be praying. 
for God to work. And finally, after five years of work, the second temple of God was finished on 516 B.C., exactly 70 years after it was destroyed, as Jeremiah prophesied what happened. So again, this signified that God was again at the center of restored Israel. And although the second temple may have not been as beautiful and as glorious as the first one that King Solomon made with all the gold plating and all the silver and everything, it actually enjoyed longer life. The first temple lasted for about 350 years. The second temple lasted about 550 years. Uh, so it actually enjoyed 200 more years of life. So let's all stand and let's praise God uh, like what they would have done before with this song.
Now, what does this whole return and rebuilding of the temple teach us? Well, it teaches us today that if we're falling away from God, if we're far in our spiritual life from God, that God wants us to come back to him and slowly rebuild our spiritual life. In James chapter 4, verses 4 to 10, we see similar language being used about Christians and how they're falling away from God at the time. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Remember, God is a jealous God, so the Holy Spirit would be a very envious Holy Spirit, right? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's found in Proverbs 3.34. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. The return of the Babylonian exiles teaches us a few things today. First, God wants you to come back to him if you've fallen away. He has not forgotten you. The people of Israel could have said, God's forgotten us. It's already been over 50 years, and we're still here in Assyria. We're still here in Babylon. We're still here in Persia. God's forgotten us. But then near the 70-year mark, people started returning to Israel by decree of the actual person that they thought wouldn't allow them to go back, the emperor himself, King Cyrus. So God has never forgot about Israel, and he never forgets about you if you're falling away from, from him. If right now you're sitting in your pews and you're wondering, oh, you know, God doesn't love me. I guess I shouldn't come back to him. Well, he does love you, and he wants you to come back to him. And there's a very good reason. There's more of a reason why you should come back to God than even the Israelis had, even the Hebrews had, and they were called the children of God. And I'm going to show you why on, in number three. Number two, like it or not, God is sovereign and is the center of the universe and history, no matter how far you're trying to run from him. And so if you're actively trying to do your own thing and, you know, I don't want to do this Christian thing anymore, let me tell you something. Stop and come back to God because you can't really outrun God. How can you outrun him? Right? Where can you go in this life, either psychologically or geographically, that you can escape the presence of God? It's impossible to escape the presence of God. Let's say you become a Satanist and worship the devil. God is there. Even when you're worshiping the devil, God is there. How do I know? Look at all of the demons that Jesus cast out. Right? You cannot flee from the presence of an omnipresence present God. Come back to him. Come back to him, right? Don't learn the hard way like Jonah did. Last but not least, when Jesus walked the earth, he was the temple of God. Okay, so he became basically the temple of God, the God in the tabernacle you see in the Old Testament was all symbolic of the person of Jesus. When Jesus walked the earth, he became the temple of God. And when he ascended into heaven, we, those who believe in Jesus Christ, became the temple of God. This is what I mean. In John chapter 1, verse 14, when Jesus was on earth, John writes this about him. The word, which is basically Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
Now, the Greek word for dwelling could be tent or tenting. He spread his tent among us. And what was the prototype of the tabernacle? It was the tent of meeting. Okay, so Jesus basically tabernacled amongst us. And how do we know that it's actually talking about the tabernacle and talking about the temple? Is because of the language he uses right afterwards. The tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the temple was where you can see the glory of God literally. Like God would come down in fire and in smoke, and you can see the heaviness and the weightiness and the the glory of God, so much so that the people who were near it would fall down in worship. It was so heavy upon them, both physically and also mentally. And then what does it say? The word became flesh and made his dwelling or spread his tent among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The same words that they use about the glory of God falling upon the tent of the meeting is the same word that the Bible uses in the New Testament about Jesus Christ. He became the temple of God. And after he ascended, we read that we become the temple of God. 1 Corinthians three sixteen to 17, Paul writes, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Right? Because in the Old Testament... Where did God dwell on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right? From time to time, he would dwell on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right? You yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit now lives in you. Now where does God's Spirit dwell? In us. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. And this is why you should come back to God right now, because you can't run away from God. Why? Because wherever you run, you bring God with you. He's inside you. So if you run far away, he's still there. You can't outrun God. Come back as he resides in his believers. Okay? He's both transcendental and he's also imminent. He's, he's in heaven and also with us. All right? So Christian, live your life seriously for God as he is already living in you and wants to live through. The issue isn't, does God live inside us? He does. When we accepted Jesus Christ in our hearts, that's the words that we actually use. Have you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart yet? He lives inside us. The issue isn't whether he lives in us or not. The issue is whether we will allow him to live through us. And we need to allow him to live through us. Let's pray.